Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. Today, it's CPI Day. It is the day of the monthly inflation report. And I'm putting this out in the afternoon because I had to relax. Today's report upset me. And I'll get to that in a little bit. It shouldn't upset me. Data is data. Uh, but I'll get to that a little bit later. First, let's uh, let's talk about the number. It, this was a really, really interesting report today. Expectations coming in were that we were going to get a, a very soft 0.4% on core. What I mean by soft is something like 0.36, 0.37. That would round up to 0.4%. And, um, and and headline um, year on year was going to come in somewhere around 5.9, 5.95, something like that. Those were the expectations coming in. And then the actual data, though, was um, considerably higher than that. The, the actual headline, so the, the headline month-on-month figure was 0.9%, so almost one full percent close to a 12% annualized rate, uh, and the year-on-year then went up to 6.2, and core inflation was 0.6%, almost exactly 0.6, taking the year-on-year up to 4.6. So considerably higher than expected. And honestly, going in, it sort of felt like 0.4 was optimistic because we sort of knew used cars which, remember, we're supposed to have be ebbing now. We were supposed to have been past the, uh, the, the, the problem with used cars, and now the prices were going to come down, and, and, and they haven't. They've actually continued to spike. And so we knew that was probably going to add a tenth or two. You don't ever know really about the timing exactly, but, but that was an upside risk. And, and you sort of knew that housing was going to add another two-tenths unless – there was like a, bull, a big pullback. So you, you sort of felt like, or I sort of felt like 0.4% was sort of optimistic. And, and it was considerably higher than that. But what was really disturbing, probably the most disturbing thing about the report, was that nothing really stood out. That is, ordinarily, when you get a big high number, like like we did, you know, when we had the, the huge March numbers in March, April, you know, those were one or two big changes. In this case, there really weren't a lot of big changes, and that's sort of disturbing. So postage and delivery services was up 3.87% month on month, but that's like a tenth of a percent of the CPI, so it doesn't matter. Cigarettes were up 2%, but that's a half, half of, uh, of a 1% of the CPI. Health insurance was up 2%, and that's 1% of the CPI. So, you know, airline fares, 3.5%, and that's also less than 1% of the CPI. So you had a few things like that going up 3 or 4%, but nothing that had a very big weight. In fact, the only category that declined more than 10% annualized uh, was jewelry and watches, uh, whereas there were more than 19, there were 19 that rose more than 10% annualized. 
Now, jewelry and watches went down maybe partly because you know, gold's been declining or whatever. But let me read you a list of, of all the categories that rose more than 10% annualized last month. Okay, this is from least, so closest to 10%, to greatest. Um, we have food away from home, household furnishings and operations, cereals and bakery products, miscellaneous personal services, infants and toddlers apparel, other food at home, lodging away from home, new vehicles, motor vehicle parts and equipment, motor vehicle maintenance and repair, processed fruits and vegetables, meats, poultry, fish, and eggs, tobacco and smoking products, used cars and trucks, miscellaneous personal goods, energy services, car and truck rental, motor fuel, fuel oil, and other fuels, and leased cars and trucks. So that's a big, long list. <laughs> against one that declined that much. And, and so what that meant is, so you, we've been talking and, 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 you know, what, as inflation has headed higher, as core inflation, headline inflation has headed higher, you know, one of the things that I've been focused on a lot is the broadening of inflation. That is, if you were going to believe inflation is transitory, then you have to believe it's due to these one-off effects in narrow product markets uh, that are directly affected by the ports or um, by by something that happened during COVID, um, by by the reopening or the reshutdown or whatever, you know, like airfares, like lodging away from home, um, used cars, which is tied to rental fleets, and so and so if you if you want to believe in transitory, you have to believe that there's something kind of narrow like that. Because, or for that matter, I guess if, if you, if it was a bunch of different goods that were all imported, so they're all import goods, then you could say, well, it's the main thing is the huge cost of, of uh, international transportation. But it wasn't just those things. It was very, very broad. And so, yes, owner's equivalent rent was up 0.44% month on month. Primary rents, rents of primary residence was up 0.42%, but we kind of expected that. But then, so there's eight major subcategories, right? So apparel is one of them. It was unchanged on the month. Mm -hmm. The other seven are as follows. Recreation was up 0.69%. Medical care, up 0.5%. Housing, 0.72%. Food and beverages, 0.84%. Other was up 0.85%. Education and communication uh, was only up 0.16%, and transportation was up 2.37%. So all of the major subcategories, with the exception of apparel, were were up substantially at, at a fairly uh, uh, fairly important rate. And so, again, broad, broad, broad. Let's break it down in a different way. Food and energy as those two categories, are up year-on-year year about 13%. That's the highest rate since just before the global financial crisis. Core goods is up over uh, over 8%, uh, near the highest since 1981. The only year-on-year only year figure that was higher was this past June, and it was only a little bit higher. So, again, 40-year highs. How about core services, less rent of shelter? 
Well, that's uh, that's not near 30 or 40 year highs. It's only around 3%, which again is higher than the Fed's target, but it's, you know, that's closer anyway. Uh, and then uh, and then we have rent of shelter. And this is the part where, you know, when there was an eviction moratorium and lodging away from home, hotels were sort of uh, uh, shut down for COVID. And so rent of shelter was really soggy. It got down to one and a half percent, although most of that was hotels. And uh, and this was sort of the, the important part. If you really believed that we weren't going to have a big inflation accident, then, you know, having housing stay pretty sane was really important. Well, we know that home prices have not been sane. We know that asking rents are or haven't been sane. And so sure enough, once the eviction moratorium was lifted, we're starting to see home prices or, or, or rent of primary residence and owner's equivalent rent are starting to go do what home prices and asking rents did. And they're not going to, it's not going to be as large, you're not going to see 18%, but you are going to see numbers that are up five, 6%. Right now, rent of shelter is only about three and a half percent, but it's pretty quickly getting up there. Um, It'll be at 30-year highs pretty shortly. So if you look at the entire consumption basket, you have 40% of it, 40% of all the categories in the CPI are inflating faster than 4%. Okay, so you don't have to look really hard. And again, you know, this is not... um, you know, these are not all things that were going through the port of Long Beach. These are not all goods. A lot of them are services. And and so you can't look at this and say, well, it's just sort of a one-off thing. This is obviously, there's a broad cause here. And the cause is too much money chasing too few goods. That's not just a slogan. It's not just a meme that that really does mean something. And And you know, ordinarily, the reason you don't get inflation coming out of recessions is that output and incomes kind of move roughly the same. As businesses get hap- you know, get more uh, interested in in uh, in production because they they perceive more demand, and so they make more stuff. Uh, they pay more workers and the workers then take that money and they buy more stuff. And so income and production tends to increase at roughly the same pace. Well, that hasn't happened this time around. If you look at GDP uh, after the the massive dip in uh, the early part of last year, the second quarter of last year, we've recovered to basically on trend uh, for GDP. So, you know, that's that's output basically, right? So that's rough. You can sort of think about that as supply. But on the income side of things, personal income is way above where it was prior to uh, the crisis. And so you have this big mismatch. And where does this mismatch come from? Uh, this mismatch does not, did not come from nothing. It's very unusual. And where did it come from? It, well, it came from the government, the fiscal government, the the, the legislature and the administration running massive, massive deficits. But not just that, because if you run a huge deficit, then you have to take that money from somewhere ordinarily. And you do, you either, well, because it's a deficit, you know you you aren't taxing it, but you're issuing bonds. And when you issue bonds, then you're trading the that debt for money. And so you take in money that you then pay away. And so the net effect 
uh, is not as large. It's fiscal irre- irrelevance uh, theory. And But in this case, the government issued bonds that were then bought by the Fed. And so this is this is upsetting to me. And the reason it's upsetting is this was eminently foreseeable. This is fiscal policy 101 and monetary policy 101. Fiscal policy 101 says you can't spend in an out of control fashion with revenues much, much less than expenditures. Okay, you can't run massive, massive deficits forever without consequences. There are consequences. And we know that, right? So we, we, we should have learned that by now. Now, those consequences might be, you know, various imbalances and, and you know, the government isn't as productive as private enterprise. So, you know, you get slower growth and maybe there's some little things like that. But then you sort of mix that with the mistake on monetary policy 101, which is you can't print money to go and buy real goods. Okay, you can't finance this big deficit, monetary policy 101. And so it's those two things together which have led us to where we are, eminently forecastable. And in fact, many of us did say that we were going to get here. Now, these, this is upsetting to me because these are lessons that we have already learned. These are lessons from the 70s, lessons from the 80s that we learned in a very, very painful way. Those of us who are old enough remember the gas lines, remember the malaise of the 70s, remember the incredibly high interest rates of the early 80s, and remember Paul Volcker coming in and grabbing the reins Without Paul Volcker, who knows what would have happened to inflation, to the currency. But we had a strong central banker who was able to start pushing down money growth, pushing down interest, pushing up interest rates, and therefore pushing down inflation and producing this this virtuous cycle that we've spoken of before where lower inflation leads to lower interest rates and lower interest rates leads to lower money velocity and lower money velocity leads to lower still inflation. And kicking off this cycle that has led us to the last 20 years being so wonderful that central bankers believed that it was because they were so smart and that they couldn't possibly cause a problem again. So who's the Volcker now? So are we going to hitch our wagon to Powell? You know, Powell's the one who sort of has gotten us into this mess. Uh, or Lael Brannard, who is the leading candidate to take over for Powell, and who thinks that Powell was way too hawkish. So it's not clear to me that there's any Volker ready to come in and save our bacon. And this is very, very disturbing to me. Look, I don't think we're going to get the high inflation rates as high as we did in the 70s and early 80s. I don't think we're going to see 10%. Um, I think that if we're able to grab the reins monetarily, keeping in mind that money growth, M2 money growth is still about 13%. So it's still way, 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 way too high. But if, if, the Fed were to complete its taper pretty quickly and and maybe even start shrinking its balance sheet, then then I think 2022, you see this 
you know, you'll see a, a, a peak of inflation, core, headline inflation in the sixes early in 2022. And then you'll see and you'll see core inflation up over five. But then it will come down and by late in the year will be at three and a half ish percent. But we're not going back to two percent. We've done too much damage. We've got we're going to be looking forward to high inflation volatility and higher inflation levels than we have grown accustomed to. And it's because of very poor fiscal and monetary management. And and it's going and, and we have squandered what it took us a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to go and um, uh, get in the first place, which is low and stable inflation. Now, I'd like to be optimistic. There are some signs that there are people in Congress who are starting to become skeptical that we can spend our way, we can borrow and spend our way to prosperity, and and that maybe spending another couple trillion on infrastructure doesn't really solve the problem because this isn't fundamentally an infrastructure problem. And it seems like maybe there's some central bankers, certainly there are central bankers in other countries, but even some central bankers in the United States who are starting to become skeptical that just printing an unlimited amount of money is a way to get everybody back to work and with no side effects. At the very least, it seems like they're starting to recognize their side effects, even if they still think those side effects are okay, just as long as we can get another 1% of the workforce back to work. Uh, at, at, least, at least there's some recognition that maybe you know, they understand the trade-offs a little better than they did. So I'd like to be optimistic. At the very least, we don't have to argue anymore about you know, whether there's inflation or when inflation is going to get here or whether or not this is transitory. It's now eminently clear. Everything is inflating in price. It's no longer some transitory categories. That argument is over. And so now we can proceed to the argument, the argument about what to do to make sure that it doesn't stay this way. Thank you for tuning in today. To Sense and Sensibility, if you enjoyed it, please uh, subscribe, like, refer us, to, uh, refer this podcast to, to other people. Uh, download the app, the Inflation Guy app. If if you uh, want to contact me, you can contact me through the app, or you can send a message on the Enduring Investments website. If you're interested in what Enduring Investments does, you can go to EnduringInvestments.com and find out about that. You can also follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. I am Michael Ashton. I am the inflation guy and you've been listening to Sense and Sensibility. Now more than ever with what's going on in the world of inflation and with prices, you need to defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.